The following is a conversation with a Kiwi of YouTuber fame, the host of the brilliant Hello Future Me YouTube channel, Mr. Tim Hickson. In Tim's own words, which I found on the Hello Future Me About page, Tim is a writer, world builder, video essayist, bread connoisseur, and a person who talks about The Last Airbender probably a little bit too much. Tim is also an immensely successful self-published author. He has an extensive bookshelf of stories ahead of him yet to be realized, but so far has published in various forums, multiple fictional stories, mostly short, but most notably has self-published two tremendous successful volumes of on writing and world building. Tim and I run the gamut in this chat, ranging from lighthearted to the less so. We started with a bit about Tim's authorship, John Green, a person he admires very much, something we don't know about him, serendipity, where Tim's fascination of stories and the construction of stories and the characters within and different world building comes from. We also speak about religion, mental health, Lord of the Rings, and as well, as I will hope you agree, some fun questions interwoven uh, throughout the piece. All right, and look, even though Tim is a New Zealander, he's all right. He's about to cross the million subscriber threshold, so if you're interested in the wonders of storytelling, your favorite characters from fiction, world building, Avatar, Lord of the Rings, and much more, do yourself a favor and go and subscribe to his wonderful channel called Hello Future Me on YouTube. There will be a link to it as well in the chat. And as well, I think this podcast is uh, subtly informed by two other episodes number 47 with Matthew Dix, and as well, episode 27 with Angus Fletcher. I think these two podcasts kind of complement the storytelling and world-building aspects of what makes a good story in this podcast with Tim. So do hang around to the end, please, to hear my ambition for this podcast and to hear my afterthoughts. But with absolutely no further ado, here is the amazing Tim Hickson. Mr. Hickson, hello. Thank you for joining me. Hello. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Glad to talk. <laughs> so your first upload was about six years ago. Among the titles oh, was Evil Penises and Society. Oh. <laughs> and Evidence the Earth is Flat. Uh, you've now published two books selling more than 50,000 copies, you said in one video, but I assume that's high now, which, you know, puts you top 1% of the publishing distribution and you have <laughs> essentially a million followers on YouTube. So if you would please guide me in the audience between here and there. Uh-huh. Oh man. Uh, it's a bit of a a bit of a running joke in kind of my more niche community that they'll they'll refer to uh whether voldemort likes bacon and kind of these old really niche uh ones that only if you really dig into the past of the channel that you would you would know and whenever people bring it up i have to i have to cringe and you'll notice that all of those were filmed in or a lot of them were filmed in lecture theaters when i was at university because i was terrified of people hearing me record hearing me i guess it's perform hmm. uh and you can see how viscerally uncomfortable i was <laughs> at the time that i filmed those uh and i was i was just having having fun trying stuff i was I've, I've had a long history of just trying different kind of small business ideas i guess in a way oh cool um you know 
when I was a lot younger, I tried to start a jewelry business, funnily enough. Nice. Um, <clears throat> I tried that for, 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 for months and it didn't quite pan out. I, 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 I tried a lot of different things and YouTube was just kind of like one of, one of the, uh, one of the latest. Uh, it didn't take off at the time that those videos were filmed, to be clear. Uh, it took off after I stopped. So I made, I made videos for six months and uh, they were just kind of random skits uh, and no one watched them. I remember thinking, you know, I got 60 views on this video, that must be good, of which I'm sure 20 were mine. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I can tell you from experience that if you set a, if you set a tab to reload on a video to count as another view mm. uh, over and over again, YouTube picks up on that. <laughs> I can tell because I tried to do that with one of my old videos when I was that small. Uh, and... In my last kind of few weeks, I was trying, I, I said, okay, okay, it's not working out. I will try and do a few different types of videos. And I did kind of a literature analysis one where I did the Shakespeare thing. And don't watch the Shakespeare one. It's <laughs> terrible and it's wrong. Um, it's terrible. And then I did this one about like kind of moral philosophy and game. That's terrible and wrong <laughs> and do not watch it. It's, it's awful. Uh, there's kind of this indefensibility of, um, freedom and making stuff you know no one's gonna watch because mm. you don't feel like there's any real consequence to what you make and so you're a lot less careful about what you say and it shows uh and then my last video i decided to talk about how to train your dragon which is a kids film series that i kind of liked because no one else was talking about it i was like oh this is an interesting question how did the night fears disappear and i looked it up no one was talking about it. i was like all right i, I guess i'll do it i made that video no one watched it no one watched it <laughs> And moved on. Okay, I was like, okay, YouTube's dead. I tried that. Next thing. Um, and then six months later, it it got 200,000 views. Holy and shit. I got 500 subscribers. And I was like, what do I do with this? What do I do with this? And so I built on that. I, I created more and more videos addressing that series. And then uh, eventually, I knew right from the start that I can't do How to Train Dragon videos forever. Not only because that wouldn't last, but... Also because I, as much as I liked How to Train a Dragon, it wasn't a passion of mine. You know, like, it was cool and I liked it, but I, I wanted to do something more meaningful that was more fulfilling in the long run. And I needed to diversify. So I added in Avatar The Last Airbender and Lord of the Rings, which are kind of cornerstones of the channel and have been for a long time. Um, and then things really changed when I added in the writing and world building stuff. Writing and world building being a long passion of mine. Um... And <clears throat> that really kicked my channel into a new gear, brought in a whole bigger audience that was interesting in education and learning, and I felt like I was doing something that mattered. Um, and in particular, I wanted to make videos that I didn't feel were being made, and it kind of as a response to my own arts degree, because I, I hated my arts degree. I didn't like how they were teaching, that sort of thing. I was like, I, I can do it better than this, I guess. And so I did. Um, and... Uh, from there, as I made these videos, I turned those writing videos, I refined them and rewrote them and edited them and added in better examples and descriptions and analysis and turned them into books. And it was honestly, it was a gamble. It was a total gamble. You know, I'm sinking thousands of dollars into, into, into selling these books. And, um, they would, and, and turns out they were a massive hit. Um, and there's a, 
bit of a funny story about the first volume um, going beyond my audience, which I can tell you if you're interested. But um, yeah, I've published two of those now, and um, they've sold about 50,000 copies, and they're just educational textbooks, really. Um, and I'm, I'm proud of them in the sense that I think it is good advice, I think it's good, good work that's gone into them. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, so that's, that's sort of where that happened. And things have grown since then, and I have published short stories in magazines, which is really cool, and I am out publishing, uh, fiction books now. Yeah. Mate, it's so, so cool, and it also is kind of like quintessential potential of the sort of new distributed economy and people living on the internet. Uh, the amount of serendipity that yeah. have you've created and invited into your life due to uh, the success on YouTube and your passion in it is yeah, culminating all these different things, which is so cool. Uh, but yeah, tell the funny story in the, in the first oh, Okay. So uh, genuinely 100% when I made that first volume, you know, I, I've always had kind of a expect low, ex expect have low expectations. That's on the, the key to happiness, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's the key to, well, it's the key yeah. to happiness, but also, uh, on online, um, mm. success is never guaranteed. Um, falling apart is inevitable, and um, the collapse of everything that you've built is uh, only a matter of time. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> on a long enough timeline, the survival rate of everything is zero. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I, I never expected much. Uh, and funnily enough, I remember telling my girlfriend very distinctly. A fiance now but um i remember telling her very distinctly when my first writing video came out i said this is not going to go anywhere this is going to get me ten thousand views maximum um and it got hundreds of thousands and that was that was a massive change so expected low but um same with this this book this on writing and world building volume one i expected it to go only within my small niche audience i i set my barriers i think i had to sell 500 or a thousand copies to break even um and i was going to be happy with that because it was more it was also about me kind of understanding the self-publishing process and i because of that i only wrote it for that really niche audience and of course because of how my channel is built there's a lot of references to avatar the last airbender and everyone else who, everyone who bought the book in my audience, in that niche core, core audience, knows that. And so they read it and they go, ah, oh, he's referencing Avatar The Last Airbender. It's a thing on his channel. It mm. makes total sense. But then it started to get so popular that it went beyond my audience to people who did not know who I am and were just seeing this writing book getting sold a lot and getting good reviews. And so, basically, I started getting reviews of people going, this guy is obsessed with The Last Airbender, a children's show. It, 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 he keeps on referring to it. And I'm going, oh, no, like, I mean, like, it's not the best example of everything, but it is an example my audience understands. And so I did not anticipate in the slightest that that was going to happen. So I got a bit of flack from that from the outside audience. But the result of that is that volume two is written for the broader audience. Uh, and I think that is really better that really has really bettered the um book mm. yeah yeah the the volume one i was looking just before it had like one and a half thousand reviews 
five fully filled in stars i mean it's it's like overwhelmingly positive but then i did read those exact comments for some reason amazon filters right to the top the two or three comments that you probably don't want the people to read um but yeah well uh, the, the the reason is people upvote negative comments more than they upvote positive comments uh, um which i, a I look i, I don't i don't read amazon reviews yeah. anymore it's it's too stressful yeah uh but um yeah no that's that's just the the nature of it but how do you explain the popularity of it um, going beyond your your very well? It wasn't a small niche, but at least your particular niche, because it is a very niche book, right? Presumably, the only people interested in it would be who themselves are trying to create a world. Um, obviously, that it goes beyond that as well. But it you know to sell that many copies for essentially a textbook is is how do you explain that? It's. I have an advantage, which is I have an audience, obviously. Um, I don't want to dimin- I don't want to, like, pretend, like, the book is just so amazing that everyone bought it. Like, everyone just just caught, got word of how incredible this textbook was and couldn't help but spend money on it. Uh, people did buy it partly because they follow me and trust my advice. Right. Um, I know that a lot of people bought it because videos are kind of unwieldy. Um, if you want to find a piece of information, you, it's not easy to scan mm. through a video. And, and it's, it's, it's also a little bit harder to retain that information. Um, and books just make it easier. So that's why some people bought it. And I think that's why people bought it necessarily more than I was thinking. And I probably underestimated how big that core audience was to start with. But in terms of getting bigger than that, a lot of people buy self-help books you know how to do this how to you know how, how many how many times do people buy how to start a business books right um or parenting books you know yeah. they're all about learning and education but what the one thing that they all have in common is that they're people trying to further a passion of theirs right something that's incredibly important to them personally in terms of their construction of self and their goals in the in, in life um, and the books really fell into, into, into that audience, I think, in, in many respects. People who want to learn how to write, but aren't necessarily sure where to start. Um, or, 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 in my particular case, most books in that, in that, um, area are written for, uh, an older audience. And and what I mean by that is the examples that they use. Like, I've got a bunch up there. I've got John Truby's The Anatomy of Story. I've got Orson Scott Card's Science Fiction um, and Fantasy Writing. I've got uh, K.M. Whalen's stuff. K.M. Whalen's stuff is, 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 is good for what I'm about to talk about. But they use older references, okay? They use references to films that came out in the 60s. They use, uh, they use a lot of classic book references. And I think that those are good, you know, these films and stuff are classics for a reason, but they're not actually that accessible to younger audiences. Um, they're not actually that accessible, like, even people in their 30s and 40s, you know, um, who grew up in the 80s, 90s, um, 2000s, they have an entire different set of stories that, that, that we sort of draw on and we remember and one thing I've always wanted to do with my store, with my uh, videos, is make them accessible to that audience. Use references that they know, and I do incorporate classics and I do incorporate those iconic cornerstone stories. 
But um, I want to, to... People are going to internalize and understand points that you want to make if you, you do it in the context of stories that they know and love. Way easier. Um, especially because a lot of the time when people write, they write to emulate stories that they love. They had an experience and they want to create that for someone else. And a lot of these writing books just don't have those references, those contexts that are easy for, for a lot of younger people in particular to relate to. And so I feel like a lot of younger people, you know, 30s and under, were buying my book and finding my book helpful over some of those older ones, potentially. It's a pet theory. I don't really know, but it is something that I do get feedback on. I know that in, in my comments and stuff, people say that they really appreciate that I use those more accessible examples. Um, yeah. Did you also, as a part of your research or just your own personal interest, have you consumed those classics, the films and the books? Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm. It sounds really, <laughs> sounds really obnoxious to say. It. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty well rounded in terms okay, of okay. my exposure to classics. G- give me an example. I've what been... is a classic? A classic book or classic both? Film or... What these other world building books are referring to? Oh, um, you know, they'll, uh, give me a second. I'll get, one second. (laughs) So, John Truby's here. He's got references to, uh, Goodfellas, uh, uh, Prizzy's Honor, The Cherry Orchard, um, Madame Bovary, uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, which a lot of people have. Um, the Odyssey, you know, um, <laughs> Dracula. Yeah. yeah, the Dra- Dracula. Uh, and a night- uh, we've got Shining here, which is, you know, it's a classic book um, that a lot of people have read. That one's, that one's newer. Mm. Uh, what else we got? It's um, Chinatown. It's just the, that? the reason I ask is yeah. I wonder whether the references you have are they just as good as these classics the lessons and the stories within you know Uh, or is there another Uh, element of the stories have evolved and so the lessons have also evolved rather than you just simply readapting the 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 old truisms for the new stories there's there's two um there's two things i want to say to that uh number one i do not always use the best example i can um there are there's 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 a few reasons for that. Uh, I might refer to Lord of the Rings or or or, or Avatar: The Last Airbender, you know, uh, for a particular beat. Uh, partly because online on YouTube, you need to make it um, kind of clickable. There's a clickability element to that, and people click on things they know, um, and so you want to attract that audience. So there's definitely that element. Uh, but also, I don't think that I think that you need a good example. You don't always need the best example, and the classics are sometimes better examples to use. And I do use them. If you go through my videos, um, you know, I've got so I've got a list of references at the start of each chapter. Let's go handling pacing. So I've got uh, the rest of us just live here by Patrick Ness. The Perks of Being a Wallflower. Uh, I've got uh, Beer Town by Frederick Bachman. And those are all kind of more modern stories. 
but then we've also got, you know, Wizard of Earthsea. We've got... Uh, uh, we've got, you know, references to Shakespeare. Uh, we've got references to, to, to 1984. Uh, we've got references back to uh, Jane Eyre. You know, as well, uh, thrown in there. Um, so, th there are... I, I, I try to give a mix of um, classic references and uh, modern references. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> and I think that that balance is really valuable, really important. Um, because I think that returning to the classics, you know, they're classics a lot of the time for a really good reason. They are profound. They are uh, literature-changing. They are incredibly important. Sorry, could it be that they're classics just because of survivorship bias? Not all of them, obviously, but <laughs> a lot of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to dismiss that as a possibility. <laughs> um, there are times that where I think that if books came out now... Uh, books that came out now came out beforehand, you know, they would be viewed as masterpieces for the ages. Oh, yeah. Give us an example. There is always... Uh, I, I would probably say... I'd say things like House of Leaves by uh, Mark Z. Danielewski. It's oh, the most bizarre book, book yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah it's the weird, <laughs> weird book. It's it's incredible. Really, it's yeah. amazing. But, uh, yeah, it, it's it's it's... Absolutely insane. Um, Susanna Clarke's Piranesi um, is is really quite profound. Uh, it has actually won awards, so it is getting a lot of recognition for that, which is really good. Uh, but, I mean, I, I don't know what its longevity will be. Um, I reckon a lot of Adrian Tchaikovsky's work, um, Children of Time, if that came out now, uh, if that came out during the Clark era, during the early science fiction era, he would be renowned as easily the best science fiction writer of the day. The thing is, uh, like, you look at those early sci-fi books; they they were so they were so so much a cornerstone writing because of the ideas that they developed and introduced and stuff like that. They were new in many senses. The writing, a lot of the time, isn't that good. Asimov is not a good writer, okay? I've read his books. He's not a particularly good writer. His prose is very wooden. His characters are entirely flat. And his ideas, though cool, are okay. Yeah, like, they're, they're pretty cool. But, I mean, I've seen books that do what he does better. And so there are a lot of books that come out now that if they came out then would be equal as classics, or if not better. Um... So I do, I do agree that there, there is sometimes, um, there is sometimes a reverence for classics because they're classics and not necessarily because they are inherently better than examples we can provide nowadays, which is something that I've always wanted to be consciously aware of. And it's why I like re um, referencing modern stuff as well, because I think there is so, so much good stuff that has come out in the last decade, two decades, um, that... Uh, deserves just as much credit really take take me back to uh the self-publishing question um i was really interested in that as well because of the volume of the books you were selling and uh, presumably a lot of the audience being in the u.s i mean you're over in new zealand were you sort of <laughs> printing them locally and shipping them off yourself you know you oh, and gosh, the missus no. no okay so no 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 okay. <laughs> 
no, no, no. That's that's all done by Amazon. Um, I there's no printing in New Zealand oh, so at all. Prints it. Yeah, a- Amazon Amazon prints it. Amazon has their own press. Uh, the second volume was also done through another company as well, um, Lightning Source or something, and uh, they all print it and distribute it to other people, and it's relatively hands off on my end. Uh, yeah, but uh, I did one time. Yeah, uh, goodness, I am not processing fifty thousand books. Goodness, I, I tried to for patrons. I said, you know, you guys can buy signed copies for this much, uh, and like two hundred of them wanted one. I was like, oh gosh. So I, I had to single handedly package and sign and send off two hundred packages, and that was. That was a mission. I turned up at the post office with like a huge wheelbarrow, <laughs> and it's just like I need to send off two hundred books, and they they sent over one guy, and he's like, "Right, this is your job for the day." <laughs> so yeah, no, I would not want to do that. Fifty thousand copies. And what about uh, Audible? Are you going to narrate it? Uh, there is an audiobook of Volume One out, and Volume Two should be out really damn soon. Are you narrating it? Um. No, no, I, I, so, it's really hard to, uh, <laughs> it's really hard to, 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 to do audiobook narration for me, because I'm so critical of how I sound. Um, it's a lot easier when, when you're the one approving it, it's so much easier to have someone else read it, because you don't pick up on all the imperfections in their own voice really sure sure so when i record a video you know when i record a video if i'm recording a four thousand word video it'll take me a couple of hours all right and the audio version for that doesn't need to be nearly as perfect as it would be for an audiobook yeah the standard's Um, so high so it'd just be absolutely awful i hate going through my own voice absolutely not so i've paid a friend to do it okay nice (laughs) Um, I, I want to circle back to the first thing uh, that you mentioned. You said that you were recording in a in a in a university lecture hall. Surely that wasn't the most private place you could find. You know, wh- 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 well, I mean, the lecture halls were, were empty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they they provided. I don't know. They were. It was at university. I had to. I had to film at university because I didn't feel comfortable filming at home, and. Generally, I had to film somewhere inside, so... Because of judgment from I the go? family? Ah, uh, like, I mean, not judgment. They weren't judging me. I've always been a weird kid, you know. They were not going to judge me, but I felt self-conscious about it, definitely. Hmm. Um, and they could arrive home at any time, so, yeah, no, no, do it do it at university. How, how yeah. self-conscious are you today when you do it? Oh, no. Five years into it, mate. Nothing, nothing faces really? me okay, anymore. Really? Okay, nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You, you get over that slowly. I, I can sit down and record anytime. Um, and it's, it's. I'm very comfortable on camera now. And you can see the difference. You can see how comfort, uncomfortable I was. In my early, very early days, I couldn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know the difference between being expressive and being comfortable on camera. And so I would just try to hype myself up and just be really expressive <laughs> hey how are we going and so this is what we're doing today we're going to talk about this dragon we're going to talk about this this chapter of things and uh i it, and so so i to sort of get over that nervousness i would just go one i would just go ham you know camp and <laughs> 
now I don't really have that. Now I'm a lot more measured. I'm, I'm very comfortable talking in front of the camera. And give me some more examples of your small business ideas. Because like you said off air, I mean, you're 26. You started YouTubing at oh. 20. Um, I feel like, uh, you know, I mean, have you, have you worked like an office job ever or, or a regular job? <laughs> Or has it just been YouTube has like paid the bills from from the go and um, yeah, well, basically I, ask like ten questions there, but I I am very very lucky. Uh, so I at, at, when I was at school, I tried to get my writing out there. Um, no way, you were writing on, in on, school on as well. Wattpad, yeah, I, 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 on Wattpad. I did it on Wattpad. Um, Wattpad's like a you put, you put writing up online and there's people who read it. That's okay. pretty much it. Okay. And I actually had some success there. I nice. had like 50,000 reads on a book I wrote. Holy shit. Um, and, it's, and, I, and I did it, funnily enough, I did it right through to the very start of my, um, in some capacity, right through to the very start of my YouTube channel, which is when you look at my earliest videos, you can actually see, I say, go check out my what? <laughs> what go that? check out my writing. <laughs> Because I wanted that to be, I want. I thought, well, like if I get a really popular video, a really popular book on Wattpad, I can get a publishing contract, become an author, blah 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 blah. But um, I very quickly realized, oh crap, that's not good. I want to, don't want people reading that, so I d- deleted that. And so there's a message. You can go to my old Wattpad account, and you can find. Thank you very much for checking this out. It's very kind that you thought you would check out my writing. Unfortunately, I'm not prepared to show what I had written here. Uh, so that was one thing I did. Um, I tried freelance editing and writing and proofreading for a long time. I actually had some success with that. I did basically on, on Fiverr and People Per Hour, those sort of um, uh, things. It's a very, very difficult industry to break into. You have to you have to do a lot of work for absolute pennies. Yeah, um yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Uh, so I definitely, I, I tried to do that. Um, and I, I, I did contracts. I did short stories for people, um, for, for board games. And that was contract work, basically. I didn't make a huge amount of money, but I did it for a while. I did try to run a jewelry business by buying secondhand jewelry or buying jewelry that didn't sell uh, at a really cheap rate and then reselling it at a higher price. Um... And that didn't pan out either. Um, <laughs> what happened there? Uh, Auckland's oh, I local just didn't make enough money. muscle got involved. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's uh, I, I sold it on Trade Me, which is basically New Zealand eBay, and um, it just—I mean, people bought some stuff, but I was usually barely breaking even, um, and the supply of jewelry wasn't um, always guaranteed, so. Yeah, it was it was very uh it was very guess guess and wishwashy. I what else did I try? Uh I I'm sure I tried other stuff. I tried I tried other stuff. I tried when I was really young to become a chef and like make my own muesli bars. Legend. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I was a, um, I was a lifeguard throughout, um, after my, after I finished school, I became a lifeguard at a pool, which I trained at for my entire life. Um, and, uh, I was also a horror maze actor at the time. So I, on Fridays and Saturday nights, I would go and be a horror maze actor and I would, um, 
I would I would scare people in corn and dress up and stuff like that, <laughs> and paid pretty well. Yeah. Um, but the lifeguard thing That's that was hourly job. work. Yeah, it was it was a brilliant job. It was a lot of fun. And then the government stole our land, so <laughs> <laughs> took the jobs. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I did that, and I, and I was a lifeguard as well, which was, I mean, that's about as boring as it sounds, uh, except for the time that I nearly poisoned the entire pool. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so, and then YouTube, I started doing YouTube in, like, my second year of uni or something like that. It didn't take off, and then in my final year of uni, or, or th- second to last year of uni, it started to really take off. And I was like, okay... If I'm going to make this work, I need to put in all my hours. And so in my last year, I basically said, I'm not going to worry about my grades. I'm just going to focus on YouTube. And I did. And um, my grades actually didn't take a hit, funnily enough. Yeah, but But, you're a smart guy. um, I mean, like you can pass, you can feign interest at university, right? I mean, (laughs) Well, I I, I liked law. I actually really enjoyed law. Oh, you're doing Um, law? I have two degrees. Okay. I have two degrees. Yeah, I, 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 have a two, I have two degrees and a double major. I've got an, a, a law degree um, and an arts degree oh, with Christ. a double major right, take in back my English comment. and political philosophy. Nice. Wow. <laughs> so you managed to, without putting in much effort, be able to pass sufficiently enough to graduate with a law degree. I mean, that's a, that's a massive achievement, right? Uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, like I wasn't just passed. Like, I mean, I'm like, a, I'm like, I was like an A student. Like, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, 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 I didn't like give up because I could not let myself give up, you know, but I, I, I was like, it's okay if I get less than an A minus, you know, I sort of let myself have that, that breadth. Um, I, I, I wasn't going to let myself fail anything and I wasn't probably going to let myself get a C. I was not doing, I was not doing C's to get degrees, but, um. I definitely was lowering the standards for myself, I guess, in that final year. It paid off, and by the time I finished university, I was doing... Um, it sounded really obnoxious being like, I'm an A student. That's so... It's, no, it's not. It's, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, but, um, yeah, no, I, by the time I finished university, YouTube was ready to go, and so I just continued with that. And that was, I guess, four years ago. Forgive me for being so specific about the, the timeline. I was just really trying to get a sense for, you know, it, your story and what it was 2017, like. 2017, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So two years into the YouTube, graduated. you're graduating university. And now four years later, yeah. you've got yeah. all these uh, yeah business proposals and opportunities coming your way. I suppose this is yes. <clears throat> maybe something I could that could wait for later, but it seems like a natural time to ask. Um, what's the most sort of serendipitous... Uh, opportunity or serendipitous outcome that has uh, been presented to you because of having such a big audience and uh, producing in in the niche that you yeah presumably own on YouTube at least there's so many answers I I could give to that Um, if you asked my 12 year old self then I'd say the ability to talk to Christopher Paolini the author of The Inheritance saga um the inheritance cycle because when i was 12 years old i i loved Eragon and eldest and brzinger and inheritance like that series that that was my world uh, and i so wanted to be him pretty much um so if you ask if you ask that uh 
the most serendipitous moment. It, it it's it's not really a moment, but it's it's more the sense that a couple of times I've had like projects which I poured my heart and soul into, which would be the complex relationship between mental illness and fiction, probably Azula's psychology, which were just deep passion projects for me and getting that the reception that they did, you know. There's something deeply personal and validating about putting a lot of effort into something you love creatively and getting that feedback. And it was kind of the first time I'd had that level of positive feedback on something creative. And it's it's really what it's all about, I guess, for me in a sense. In, in the more broader sense it would be that this job has given me the freedom to write uh in my as part of my job you know i try to take at least one day a week to sit down sit down and write fiction books and at some point in the future those are going to come out and that is an opportunity that i do not have i would not have if i was doing a nine to five job if i was doing a law job the ability to write in the way that I do is just life-changing. It's deeply personal and it is the thing that makes my life like it, it I can't imagine my life without it really. You, you must look up to John Green so much. <laughs> like the sort of education YouTube turned author, right? Did you, did you pick up on that? Like, so when you say I must look up to John Green, did you know that I'm a John Green fan? Well, or is that I, like you through deduction? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I know that in your book on the seven, no, sorry, your video on the seven books or stories that changed my life, it featured John Green. Um, and I think I saw on the bookshelf right. in one of your things. I, I mean, presumably, I think it was like four or five John Green books, but just as you were saying it, I don't know. It it, it made me think that. No, I. It's a I, similar trajectory I, to John I Green. Really I really do like John Green's writing. Um, one of his books, Paper Towns, really did deeply affect me, and I talked about that. Uh, I don't think he's the best writer in the world, but I don't think that someone has to be the best writer for them to be your favourite, you know, or anything like that. Uh, it, the stories just have to affect you. And I really like his honesty in dealing with mental illness. I like his honesty in... I like his introspective head writing um, a lot. And I like his um, ethics and approach to an online world, I guess. Um, and he's been a leader in that area. So, uh, yeah, I, I definitely I definitely have a lot of... I, I definitely look up to John Green as someone. His, my favourite quote, actually, is from him. Oh, great. Uh, and the, the, the quote is, I think there's uh, something about uh, knowing something... Uh, I think there's something about not knowing whether something exists and yet choosing to still believe. That's a lot of life to me. Uh, uh, yeah, ch choosing to choosing to invest things with meaning regardless of whether or not they have inherent meaning. And he said that on a podcast, just like <laughs> offhandedly. And that, that stuck with me because it is it is so true in the sense that 
so much of life is is about finding meaning and constructing meaning and seeing where personal meaning is mm. um and i i have i have in many senses developed that in my own writing so yeah john green is is, is someone that i do do look up to and that uh favorite quote of his I suppose foreshadows the religious question that I want to ask you soon as well. Um, but this isn't a question; it's just a uh, a comment. You spoke about sort of the the one of your favorite um, projects might be trying to uh, communicate to an audience. Very difficult mental health, you know, and and the theme of it, written in fiction and so forth. Uh, and your videos uh, do remind me a lot of like stories of old. Sometimes I think like stories of old is you know. I don't know what you think about it. Presumably you like it, but I think it's just such an amazing channel. Beautiful. Like it really makes you feel, you know? And um, yeah, it's not a question. It's just a comment uh, that specifically sometimes your channel really reminds me of it. Yeah, like Stories of Old does some good stuff. We have had a few exchanges back and forth. Uh, he, he's got a really nice, unique take to uh, writing and to, to stories. And he's one of the yeah. few... Dutchmen who sound good in English. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the mechanics of storytelling. It seems like this isn't something that you saw was a a decent opportunity on YouTube, and then it became an interest of yours. It sounds like just from the get go, you've been fascinated in that. So. Yeah, did like when did it sort of start this interest in trying to understand the mechanics of of a good story? I remember when I was younger, sitting down and getting Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone out, and trying to understand why this book works. Like I sat down and I took notes and I went through it and I was like, why is the story resonating with me? Um, yeah, and I did that, I did that for fun. I've always done that for fun. And like when, when I would come out of, you know, movies, I would, I would talk to my friends and they'd be like, what did you think? And I'd be like, oh, I love the literary symmetry between these two <laughs> elements. I felt like it made the thematic dimensions of the story really resonate a bit. And they'd just look at me and they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so... I, I've always had a very mechanical approach to, to stories and figuring out why they work, you know, the, the an anatomy of, of these stories. And um, <clears throat> I guess what happened was I, I was looking on YouTube for writing advice videos in, in, in many senses. And I was, I was seeing, you know, it'd be like, oh, how do you write a first chapter? And I'd be like, introduce your character. And I'd be like, yeah obviously <laughs> what does that mean uh and so i decided to look through stories and go okay how do they actually introduce characters why do these chapters work better than others and i looked at those commonalities and i broke that down and i wanted to be more specific i wanted to be deeper uh and so then i presented that in my own video on first chapters uh and then a counterpart to this was i did an arts degree with english and i did a creative writing course and I hated it. Um, I skipped the classes because, I mean, that's that's a long story. But um, basically, it was just so shallow, so surface level look at creative writing. And I was like, 
I feel like there's so much deeper we can go in looking at understanding stories. Um, and so I wanted to do that. But that love for understanding stories has always, always been there. Um, and a lot of that comes from... I've always enjoyed literary commentary from the authors themselves, looking at authorial intent. So... <clears throat> um, I always liked reading, you know, why did they write this particular thing this particular way? It's because they wanted to do this. They wanted to do that. They wanted to... Uh, they wanted to, to, to explore a particular theme. And having that context made me enjoy reading the book more. Um, and then likewise at school when I was doing English, you know, I would go out of my way to kind of explore things intentionally. You know, I wasn't just there, I guess, to get an, get a, get an excellence, which is the, you know, the, it's getting an A or whatever in New Zealand. We have a terrible grading system. <laughs> excellence. Um, <laughs> what's wrong with a good old yeah, D excellence we don't do it. We have excellence, merit, achieved, almost achieved, and not achieved. That's absurd. That's it's so funny. Dumbest, it's the dumb... Yep. Almost achieved. Uh, but I wasn't there. To, almost achieved. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I wasn't there to, to kind of, like, just get the grades or uh, mimic back what the teacher wanted. I liked exploring these things. So that interest has always been there. Um... You were, or are at least, a religious man, but you grew up in a religious household. Did you ever, you know, yes. I presumably you, I don't know, read the Bible. I've, I've never read it, but I, I just assume maybe you might have. It was part of school or whatever. Um, did you apply this sort of world building critique and worldview and sort of <laughs> narrative construction to the stories in there? Oh man, that's such a... <laughs> that's such a weird question <laughs> um it's i mean you can look at the bible as a thematic study right as breaking down the meanings and intentions behind why it is written why it is and so sermons are in many respects taking a passage, a scene, a section, and exploring their context around surrounding context, and then the intention behind that, the deeper meaning than just the surface level what is written there. Uh, and that is a very thematic way of approaching it. And so I did that inherently by the community that I grew up in, you know, going to church each Sunday and reading the Bible, um, and there, there were, there were definitely times when I, when I, when I looked at it from a literary point of view, there's some beautiful writing in, in the, in the Bible. There's a famous phrase, through a glass darkly, now I see through a glass darkly, and there's a bunch of books called Through a Glass Darkly, and John Green, funnily enough, wanted to call one of his books Through a Glass Darkly. And and what it means is, basically, I don't see things clearly. I am biased. I have uh, misconceptions. I have made mistakes. I, by nature of being a limited human, do not see things perfectly. And understanding what that means and 
deconstructing that in the context of our own lives was a fascinating exercise for me. And so that, that, that verse kind of stuck with me for a long while. Um, and then you look at, uh, you look at, um, oh, my knowledge is fading on me, but, um, there's, uh, let me, give me a second. I will look <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, um, Hitchens said, Christopher Hitchens, you know, like famously dogmatic atheist, but he was like, you know, it's, it's actually quite a good book in parts, um, which, uh, you know, <laughs> like because it's, of the it's writing. It's a fascinating you know? book to study. Yeah. yeah. But go it's on. Don't let me interrupt you. Study. Oh, I, I was, no, I think Christopher Hitchens was right in that sense that it's a fascinating book to study. And if you look at it from an historiography point of view, uh, and a poetry point of view, there's a lot of really interesting stuff in there. Um, Ecclesiastes is, is I, I would say James and Ecclesiastes were the, were the books that resonated with me most um, because they were so grounded in their look at life and what it means. You know, Ecclesiastes being all about, you know, life is futile and yet we, we life is futile and yet we survive. Life is misery and yet we find happiness. Life is, uh, life is suffering and yet we find peace. And it's all about that look into the almost nihilistic nature of the world and constructing meaning for ourselves out of it and finding that meaning where it can. And James, on the other hand, it's a very practical book about um, morality in, in the sense that, you know, what's the point in doing... Um, what's the point in, 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 in being good if you're not doing good? If you're not actively doing good you can't just be passively good you can't just be step back and kind and listen you've got to go out of your way and actually help people and so those resonated with me a lot in terms of applying it to my own life um and from a literary point of view they were written in ways that i think uh kind of captured a lot of my feelings yeah so I definitely approached it lit in a literary sense. Um, as a young boy. that's one way to do it. Yeah. Uh, in many, many ways. Uh, probably not as a young boy. As a young boy, I didn't really think that much. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as an older person, definitely. Yeah. And today, are you still religious? Oh, man. Questions are up in the air, right? <laughs> it's, uh... Uh, I... I... I am as Christian as the clouds are grey. <laughs> okay. And I'll leave it at that. Through the glass darkly. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, so in this book, we've mentioned John Green already. We've mentioned Paper Towns already. But in Paper Towns, uh, particularly the theme... No, in Paper Towns, you said that the reason why it was such a powerful story to you was because of the theme of the difference between how you uh, think of someone, how you think they are versus how they really are. And so what are people missing in their understanding of, of you? What's, where's the oh. difference? Aha. Nice. Yeah. Nice, nice twist on that question. Um, yeah. Okay. What are people missing about me? It's, you know, being an online personality in many senses, there is so much of me online. Uh, but people also do have a very 
cultivated understanding of who I am through my videos. You know, everything I say in my videos is scripted. Everything, all my jokes, most of my jokes are scripted. Um, confidence is in many senses scripted. I am a confident person. Um, I always have been. Uh, and so I think probably something that a lot of people miss about me is they probably think I'm quite extroverted. Um, that I'm quite out there, potentially. I, I'm a very introverted person. I tend to be very happy on my own. Um, and I don't need a lot of people, you know, interaction, that sort of thing. Uh, what are people missing about me? People know I'm a cat person. People know I'm into board games. <laughs> people know I am... Uh, re I'm into reading. People think that I am a really avid world builder, funnily enough. When people, people think about my books, you know, what they expect me to write, they think I'm going to come out with a really in-depth sci-fi world with huge world building and empires and it's going to be a big adventure fantasy science fiction series. And to be perfectly honest, I like kind of more literary science fiction you know i don't really care that much for big world building i like looking at it from kind of a study point of view i like kind of figuring out how the world works i've always enjoyed lore dumps uh, but it doesn't hold that much interest for me to write you know i loved jeff vandermeer's annihilation which is not a book big on world building but it is an incredible science fiction book about deconstruction of the self and the connection between oneself and one's past and one and the world around you um and those ideas are what i'm there for and so and to, people think i'm also really big on fantasy and i used to be i will be honest i used to be i, I used to be a massive fantasy reader and writer but i have over the last kind of five years, four years, three years maybe, I have definitely begun to prefer science fiction and I prefer literary science fiction and fantasy. Stuff which isn't epic fantasy, you know, big battles and and, 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 and chosen ones and stuff like that. I like stuff that's a lot more low-key um, and that really comes out in the, in the reading and writing that I kind of do. You know, I just finished Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane which is a very subtle piece about it's a love letter to the worldview of children um and it's not a big it's hasn't it's got it's got very soft world building which is a term i discuss on the channel um about kind of using minimalistic world building that uses the unknown to invite the, you to imagine more which is also very much jeff anime's annihilation um so yeah i i, I think that's probably the biggest misconception people have about me and my reading and writing preferences and so when when people come out where i've got two books i've got a, a new adult book which deals with mental health of which there is almost no speculative element and people are going to be pretty shocked with that and then there's also a science fiction book which i'm writing which yes has world building but i don't really care if it's realistic it's all about the vibe and atmosphere that i'm creating it's an exploration of loss and grief and identity in the wake of that. T tell me more about the, the mental health book. Is this the sci-fi 
that you just said you like have submitted to publishers recently? So I, I it's it to call it sci-fi would be dishonest. Um, it has a science fiction element, but it is not a science fiction story. Um, it's 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 no more a science fiction story than oh, I'm trying to think of a good comparison. Oh, I shouldn't have put myself on the spot like that. Um, Patrick Ness's "The Rest of Us Just Live Here" is a story about um, kids who are going through issues and mental health and their relationships breaking apart. And there's one guy who has magic powers, basically. And those magic powers don't play a key role in the story, um, except he heals something at the end, pretty much. And that is it. And that's kind of the same vibe, is that, it, it? sure, there's a science fiction element, but it is only there to support the thematic exploration of... Uh, mental health and self-harm and suicide and what it means to help someone and how helping someone can damage us and how we heal from that, how we put up boundaries, how we put up, um, how we kind of manage those feelings of duty and responsibility. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, th those, those are definitely, that that's, that's sort of the mental health book. It's, it's about learning what it means to help and it's about, learning the consequences of helping that dragging ourselves into it can mean we feel responsible can mean we feel well, yeah. like it's all that's down to insight. us and that's something that i have a lot of experience with and it can be pretty damaging um yeah and so i wanted to write about those experiences i guess mm -hmm. tell me if it's too personal um but you used to work at the suicide and self-harm hotline. Still do. You've just uh, spoken about... Oh, you still do? Yeah. And yeah. you've just spoken about um, a book you've written about in the topic of mental health. And it's something you've dealt with personally. Um, you know, why is it uh, such a fascinating, interesting... Maybe they're the wrong words, but that's at least how I interpret it. Like topic to you and, and condition. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's... It's, it's, it's a mix of, uh, past struggles of my own, but also being, I've, I've been in, 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 in a relationship in the past where the person I was with was, um, in a very dark place and they tried to kill themselves multiple times and I was too young to deal with that. I was at school and, you know, I got a text saying, I love you, but goodbye. Um, I'm going to kill myself now. And I, I did not know how to handle that and I didn't handle it well. Um, and that had a long-term effects on, on me and my, my sense of like what I should have done differently. And so that was kind of led me along the path to wanting to learn more about how to deal with that, to get confidence with it. Uh, I've also, a lot of my closest friends have been in similar dark spaces. And so I've always, I've been surrounded by it for a long time. Um, <clears throat> and that really drove me to join that helpline and get those skills. And I've been with it for about five years now, four years, five years. Yeah. And, and how did you um, deal, deal with that uh, and continue to, to deal with it, being so close to it? uh learning yourself yeah uh learning getting confidence 
the the biggest scariest thing is not knowing what to do really at least it was for me uh it was this sense of you want to be able to fix it but you don't know how um and one of those one of the things you sort of learn is that fixing it isn't necessarily possible at least not for you and fixing it is a very long-term struggle change uh that you can be there for that you can support but you can't make happen you know and so there was therapy involved and it was very much a journey towards knowing what i can do at what time and knowing what i can't do and knowing when something does go wrong want to ha what what do you do um and having that knowledge feels like you're prepared you know um and so understanding the most important elements of risk and stuff like that um even knowing who to take them to uh, if if possible and watching out for those own thought for, for my own thoughts and learning how to handle those um yeah so it it's 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 a complicated world really um but i am really glad that i have learned in uh, what i have and have grown since and yeah I think uh, what you said when you were describing the, the book that you've written on the topic, um, you said that the, how when you get involved, dealing with the fact that maybe you've taken on the responsibility and then you might feel maybe not burdened, but you'd feel like you're now, in, you're now almost responsible for what ends up happening. I mean, I think that's a, like a really good insight. Um, but you're also there at the self-help line uh, do you feel like th this is you sort of plunging yourself into um, taking on the responsibilities of others? And I, 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 this isn't a prepared question. It's just something that came up the, the, to draw the line between those it, two it's, points. No, it's it's doing it in a safe context. Um, because, I mean, you can sort of... I mean, I mean, I could be brutally honest and look at it as sort of like a making up for my past mistakes or making up for, you know, like... I couldn't do that before. I can do it now. If you really want to do that, draw that sort of line. Um, putting myself purposefully in in that area, it's you know it makes you feel good that you're you're doing that, that you're helping that. Um, but you're doing it in a safe context. You know, for one, when I leave that place, I can put away what's happening there. Like, people ask me, you know, it's funny, the more experienced ones at the helpline, you know, will be asked, you know, of what what have, what calls have you had? What texts have you been having? Um, you know, what discussions have you been having? And most of us will be like, I have no idea. I can't remember any of them. Because you, you compartmentalize it. Um, and that's a good thing. We're encouraged to compartmentalize it. When you're there, you're there. When you're not, you're not. Because um, you can't spend time trying to figure out, you know... Um, making you know trying to make sure everything's handled at all times and it's it was it, it is in many senses the people who struggle with that sort of dynamic in their real in their day-to-day -day life it's the inescapability of it one of the most difficult feelings is i shouldn't be thinking about 
this when I have this worry about this other person. I don't know what they're thinking right now. I don't know how they're feeling. They could be trying to kill themselves right now. And you are... <clears throat> that, that feeling dominates your thought process. And on top of that, there's the sense of, I can't be happy because there's that stuff going on. How can I take time to do this thing to be happy when I've got this responsibility on my shoulders? And that's really self, it's, it's really self-destructive in, 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 in a sense. And so being at the helpline, you know, you don't, you don't have that. Um, it's a very safe way to help, but knowing that there is a safety net when you leave, that other people will take over. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you, you're not like the person's one point of contact and, and, that, and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that's, that tends to be the case. Uh, and I've dealt with some pretty dark stuff at, at the helpline. Um, you know, I, I can't give details, but it's people on the bridge type level of stuff. Um, children are definitely the most difficult. Um, but uh, it, it, you're doing it in a safe context. I wonder how much this resonates uh, with you. I don't remember where I heard it from, whether it was a TV character, movie character, book character, but it was that... Um, some people just have a nerve ending exposed to the world. And that was a way to explain mostly sort of manic uh, behavior and, and mood swings. And, um, you know, I just, you can uh, see it and in, in, in people. And I just wonder how much it resonates with you because, um, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, I don't know. It just in the, in the context of speaking about uh, mental health, I think that's a... Um, you know, something that always stands out to me. And I can sort of see that in specifically the cases of just quite simply like a chemically induced depression, people that can be ecstatically happy and then, you know, terribly down and, and sad, you know, I think it was just, it's quite a beautiful, they just have their nerves exposed to the world. It's like, it's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, some people do have that sort of feeling. I, I actually probably am not that sort of person, I think. I'm very affected by my own experiences, but I, I, I guess I, I am not constantly wrapped up in the horrible things of the world, which is in a way a good thing. Um, but I, I try to be aware of those most horrible things at least. I don't think it was a comment necessarily to say um, like exposed to world events, but just that they themselves, their own emotions were uh, not under a layer of skin, right? They were, they were on the top and therefore more sensitive and, and sort of easily rubbed like that. That I think that was more uh, of the interpretation. Right. Yeah. yeah. Some people, some people are like that. Um, it, uh, yeah. Some people like that. Definitely. Look, I, I, I think I will transition, but just, and I'm editing, right? But just so you know, I mean, I, I do think it's like an interesting conversation as well. Broader sort of uh, depression and I'm not sure what it's like in New Zealand. I mean, I'm in Sweden, uh, famously. In Sweden? Yeah, oh I'm gosh. in Stockholm. Yeah. Oh, wow. So join like, <laughs> so it's like, you know, famously, um, you know, one of the highest suicide rates per capita and uh, the most antidepressants um, per capita, all this sort of stuff. Um, and I just, I, I do find it um, 
really, really interesting. But yeah. Um, what do you reckon? Is it worth talking about or should we transition back into world building? Uh, well, I can tell you New Zealand has the highest youth suicide rate in the world. <laughs> Does it actually? Yep. Higher than Finland, higher than Sweden. What is the explanation of that? Oh, it's complicated. I mean, I would be going into speculation on that. Actually, is is Sweden on this chart? Are you guys in the... You guys are in the OECD, surely. Yeah, for sure. Where are you guys? Sweden. Ah, uh, yeah, you guys are a bit... Yeah, we are... Um... Yeah, 15 to 19 OECD countries. Uh, oh, this is from 2008, though, so it might be outdated. But, uh, yeah, New Zealand is at 15 point something, followed by Finland at about 12. I mean, um, can you speculate as to why that is? I'm shocked to hear that for New Zealand because, you know, the classic explanation for the Scandinavian countries is just the winter depression, you know, a really? combination of a... Yeah, it's like a combination of a lack of serotonin, not serotonin, um, the vitamin D, whatever that is, lack of sun, uh, in addition to just being extraordinarily egalitarian. This is me sort of projecting my own theory, but like such an egalitarian culture where you're born being told your whole life you're in one of the best countries in the world, the most equal countries in the world. And so you can do whatever you like. You know, there's like no excuse for not being able to become the person that you sort of know deep down you might could be. And not everyone can become the person they want to be just because it's a hard thing to do. And so um, because of that, there's like, um, I think that like story your whole life and then sort of becoming an adult and realizing it's not that easy. It's and then disillusioning. Really. Yeah. And then having such an easy access to, um, antidepressants, I think makes it worse. Yeah. As well. You guys but, have um, huge amounts of drug consumption, don't you? Drug? Like, uh, sorry, when I say drugs, like, uh, antidepressants, like I, I, think antidepressants. I, remember, I think I remember, um, yeah, I think I remember something like Norway had, you know, like, is just like huge amounts of uh, antidepressants being consumed. Uh, Shitloads. Uh, why New Zealand has such a high youth suicide rate? It, I am not an expert in this field. Um, I can only really speak to kind of my personal experiences and the data and, and stuff that I sort of picked up a bit kind of through osmosis through working at this uh, suicide helpline. Um, it's partly because of high rates of child abuse, I think. Um, there's strong correlations between child abuse and suicide in teenage years, um, suicide attempts. Uh, and we have a shockingly high child abuse rate. Uh, and that's reflected I'm shocked in... by that. It's, it's complex socioeconomic stuff. Um, being in a post-colonial country, um, there is... Uh, poverty elements that that kind of I mean, lower socioeconomic elements that that build into that, um, like an overrepresentation by the minorities of New Zealand. Well, I mean, it's 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 it's. I mean, that's that's not entirely true. No, because uh, I mean, if you if you want to look really deeply at um, the data, you know. Um, it's, in fact, to be honest, it's probably not worth getting into this particular discussion on the podcast, but I will tell you that um, child abuse rates are higher on average in certain demographics 
partly because they are in poverty. But if you look at like pedophilia data, it's an overwhelmingly uh, European problem in New Zealand. It's complicated and I don't want any listeners to get the impression that what I'm saying is child abuse is a result of cultural differences. Um, because I'm not an expert and that would be a terrible conclusion for me to be coming out with. The, 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 the reason that I would say is probably uh, it's shockingly high rates of child abuse, um, which translates to suicide rates later on in life. Um, we don't have a pretty, we don't have a particularly good mental health support system. Uh, and part of that is cultural. In New Zealand, talking about your problems is pretty, it's not like, I don't know what it's like in Europe, but um, talking about talking about your problems, not, not particularly, not particularly encouraged. Um, culturally speaking, it's, it's especially among men. Um, there's very much the sense of uh, leave people alone, leave people to their own issues. It's a bit weird to talk about it, that sort of thing. Oh, that's the worst, isn't it? That's the same in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Uh, New Zealand and Australia have that in, in many senses uh, in common. Um, and then uh, there's, there's an interesting statistic, which is that suicide rates are just way higher in higher econ- socioeconomic countries. Um, at least by the data that we have, the data of really poorer countries, we obviously, it's very hard to get, um, you know, you're not going to get accurate suicide rates from North Korea. Um, but, uh, there's, there's a bunch of reasons for that, which are really complicated. And if you are interested in learning about that, I recommend looking it up and studying that a bit more for yourself, because it is a very strange statistic that basically higher economic earnings lead to higher suicide rates on average for some reason um yeah but that's that's uh that's, that's why it is i actually i kind of think that it, it is a very simplistic take but just because it's simplistic doesn't mean it doesn't have an element of truth um if you look at i mean and the reporting is not as good as maybe in the oecd countries but it's still it's still you can still get a decent a decent slice for uh, how people are dying within a populace, right? And so you can then extrapolate out and know how, the cause of death. You know, India's a billion people, China's billion point four. Um, there's shit tons of people all around the world in, uh, I mean, Mexico as well, 150 million people. And they have famously low suicide rates. And I think the reason why it might be higher in, um, you know, high socioeconomic countries could just be the simple reason that, things are easier, there is less difficulty. And when all of your needs are met with very low effort, you start asking the bigger questions and that's not enough to, um, I mean, for some it is, but generally that wouldn't be enough to sort of make you depressed, you know, looking for meaning in the world and so forth. But uh, that in combination with what I said before, you know, sort of, being told you can do whatever you want, but then realizing that you in fact might not be capable of doing what you want. Um, it's like one of the hardest truths ever. And, and um, then you get thrown into depressants. You know. Yeah. So <clears throat> suicide is typically connected to things like um, massive changes in one's life, like losing a job, um, losing a partner. Uh, it's connected to anniversaries, you know, like this is the, the time that my, my, my daughter died, that sort of thing. 
And I think those, I think potentially those moments become more important in a life where everything is in many ways provided. Um, you know, you look at Japan, which has a very high suicide rate. Um, and the, uh, the people build their identity around their job a lot more. Um, which, yeah, it's, it's, it's pop speculation on that front, but, um, I, I, I don't know. I'd have to look into it more to give you an exact answer. Yeah. I mean, I'm not asking you for the, for the, for the answer, but just like generally, um, to, to speculate, but, um, okay, let's, uh, transition back into the world building. If you don't mind. No, of course we can, we can change gears, go from super dark to, to super light. Um, Tim, to make a rather awkward transition, but one we've agreed to make nonetheless, <laughs> um, in our email exchange, uh, I think you articulated really, really well how um, I feel about the hero's journey. Because I thought the hero's journey, world building, you know, Tim's going to be all over this. Um, and you said Campbell was writing about why stories resonate and the structures of those stories, uh, what they share in common, rather than giving this explicit list for how to write a story, you know, and the writer's journey, which was adapted by Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, you know, famously has just got its tentacles into all of the big Hollywood um, um, stories. You know, I heard in an interview, John Favreau say that his movie Chef was just written explicitly from the hero's journey. And you can actually, after he said that, I watched it because it's a great movie. Uh, and George you know, Lucas like, said the same, by the way. He um, he was very, very close to, I think he I think he lectured under John Campbell or something. Um, oh, really? I didn't yeah, know. He has, some, he has some more explicit connection, but he basically just like wrote Star Wars to be the hero's journey. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it's so funny once you once you sort of just take a very casual look at the steps and it's like call to action, refusal of the call. Yeah. And then you actually go on the journey, you know, venturing into the 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 dragon's lair, you know, as explicitly as possible sometimes. So anyway, I just um, uh, with that as the preamble, basically, I wanted to ask you about if you could sort of reflect more openly on uh, the hero's journey and where it sort of fits into your worldview. The hero's journey is, as I said in the email, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. Um, it's describing why stories resonate rather than describing how we should write stories. Um, to me, it doesn't hold that much importance. It's kind of like, you know, using the three act structure in a way. The three-act structure resonates for a really good reason. Um, but to tell someone you should write your story with a three-act structure with this explicit structure in mind, to me, is limiting. It's good advice to someone starting out because you can sort of... It's, it's, a, it's a quick-hand way of getting them to a point where a story is functional, you know. If someone knows nothing about storytelling, telling them, <laughs> do the hero's journey, have a darkest hour, um, have an inciting incident, it's a quick hand way to get something that resembles a functional story. 
Um, but that's about as useful as it gets for me. I think it's actually more useful for someone who wants to understand stories conceptually and then wants to challenge th those conceptions. So if you understand why the hero's journey works, you can understand potentially why your story isn't resonating as well as people might think. Because, well, it doesn't have a Darkest Hour. Oh, oh, I don't have a Darkest Hour. That's right. Uh, and people really like Darkest Hours. Okay, great. Um, but also, you can look at those story elements and you can rearrange them and you can challenge those um, assumptions and you can subvert those structures to be more... Um, to, to write the story that you want to write. Keeping in mind kind of why people like certain types of stories and finding new ways to achieve that. Finding new ways to achieve that. Um, yeah. So... I, it doesn't hold that much importance to me personally. Uh, I, I think it's too broad to be applied as helpful advice. Um, and it's, it's, it's a lot more to do with teaching people the basics, I guess. What he wrote was profound for its time because he articulated something in the subconscious. Um, which is a very interesting thought process. It's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, but there's nothing that I would kind of like worship is particularly profound you know he's kind of pointing out stuff that's underneath all the stories that we write uh <clears throat> but he's good at articulating why they resonate yeah i'm sorry i don't really know how to answer that question no no it's good it's good perhaps perhaps this one might uh make a little bit more sense and it does get a touch woo woo um but what about Jungian archetypes? Gosh. How do they fit into the world building? And and how seriously do you take them? Because oh, um. <laughs> I noticed, by the way, I, I, I went on the search of your channel and there was no video with the name archetypes in the title. So I found that quite perplexing. I don't really know that much about Jungian archetypes. As far as I'm aware, there are a lot more to do with psychology than they are with writing. Yeah, but they're, they're like... The whole idea, I mean, that's what Campbell was going off, Jungian archetypes. The idea of this subconscious, uh, subconscious characters and subconscious storylines that play in our collective subconscious. That's why it gets a little bit woo woo. Yeah, but no, like, it's, I, it's his, I... it's his like explanation of, of, uh, you know, theory of everything almost. Why it does we are feel we like, are, a why we like what we like, you know. Um, yeah, Jungian archetypes, I, 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 I <laughs> This is such a... I don't know off the top of my head. I would say... <laughs> I would say... Jungian archetypes are an interesting way of analysing stories. But they're not, like, ways to instruct someone to write a story. I I guess. Um, Maybe a way to write characters? Not the story as the whole. I mean, because they are, like... The whole point of the archetype is a character specific, and if one archetype is there, then it sort of requires one to complement it here. I mean, it's throughout Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah, but, like, I mean, for every story... I guess I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm quite wary of 
I don't know. I really don't know how to respond to that. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> it's okay, mate. I've never thought about Jungian archetypes as, as a way really? to look at Really? I shouldn't have brought up Jung. Well, maybe maybe one day when you I, come I've through I've always Stockholm. thought of it as like the way that we more relate to like other people and the people, the roles that people play in our lives. Um, more than like archetypes for writing. Um, like they're definitely in there. Absolutely. But there, what I will say is that stories that play on the collective subconscious, because I do think that there is a collective subconscious, stories are used to discuss things in the abstract. Um, you do think there's a collective unconscious? I think there's a collective unconscious in the sense that huma humanity and society as a whole is always having ongoing discussions. Um... And we're often using stories to vicariously discuss those. And we look for stories uh, that resonate with things that lack in our lives. Um, you know, there's a reason that some people will, you know, re be really touched by a story with a with a mother archetype, you know, a grandmother archetype that the where they don't necessarily have that in their own lives. Um, and you'll notice that stories say if humanity is in a particularly hopeless period, we use stories to reflect those, to those, um, those feelings and to find meaning. You know, you look at stories written during the war, um, you look at, I think it was the myth of Sisyphus, which was written, I think that was written during World War Two, or at least it was written when, when he was, um when he was when he, he he was he came out of world war ii or something and uh there's a lot of discussions about how do we process the fact that this giant world war kind of just happened um on a on a collective level how do we face the fact that everything feels like it's falling apart and so i think that stories do address those and i like stories that on some subconscious level address things that we are concerned about and personally worried about. And a lot of, like, epic fantasy doesn't necessarily do that for me. Um, you know, y you look at a lot of epic science fiction, epic fantasy, and, and, and a lot of them will be really fun stories with great characters, and they're a lot of fun. Um, but the reason they don't necessarily resonate with me is that they don't spend a lot of their time delving into the deeper psychological stuff that I'm really interested in, in reading about, I guess, which a lot of the time plays into that collective subconscious type thing. Um, yeah. And I would think like a, a recent example of that would be, um, things like Arrival or Blade Runner 2049, which <clears throat> are these films that that delve really deeply into but uh, Blade Runner 2049 delves into a desolated world um is desolated a word desolated's a word desolate is a word but i think you can desolate something right i don't even yeah, know but sounds about right uh it's it's this desolated world and finding meaning and the smallness of the individual which is something that in the Western world is resonates with a lot of people, um, at the moment in particular and arrival, you know, reckons 
with kind of a changing understanding of our place in the universe where before there was kind of this utopian vision of humanity will ascend to the stars and will connect with the world and we will be their equals arrival makes it so much more alien um with this sense that actually we're pretty small part of whatever's going on out there and it's 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 kind of frightening um yeah yeah so session lose um books the remembrance of earth past trilogy does that as well i'm really surprised to hear you say that you believe in the collective subconscious i mean jung did see it as like a a literal shared place where the history of generations past lived um and i mean and you're talking and to someone who does not know jungian psychology that well yeah yeah i know but i said I, collective I, unconscious you just mean like society's kind of shared concerns yeah <laughs> no but that's that's kind of the funny that's kind of the funny thing about jung um and forgive me for bringing him up honestly i i i i i i, I wouldn't have if i if i knew like it wasn't interesting at all to you but like that's the thing about jung he 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 was a he literally meant what he said um but he's been interpreted in, interpreted in hindsight as being very um metaphorical with what he's saying or i don't, I, know, I don't right think word, humanity but... has a hive mind <laughs> no but that's what he thinks that's what he thinks <laughs> okay and, and and furthermore he thinks that like we are predetermined archetypes and we will then manifest our journey according to that and it's just anyway Anyway, that's why you see, um, particularly with some of Jung's worst takes, that's why you find him pretty heavy on like the hard right of the internet, you know, because it's all about like um, predetermined destiny and power and, and then, you know, bad takes of the Ubermensch you get thrown in there and stuff like that. So anyway, all right, this is one which I'm sure you keep the cards close to the chest, but how many different drafts do you have sitting in your computer of like of different stories? How many <laughs> stories have you started that have their own unique world characters plot? It's funny. You say, you know, like, I'm pretty sure you're going to play your cards close to the chef. I'm like, what on earth is he going to ask after he's asked <laughs> all these previous questions about the other topics, like about <laughs> mental health and religion. And like, like, what on earth could this be? How deep is he delving? Um, okay, so, uh, alright, I have, um, I have half a draft of the first draft of this sci-fi novel that I'm writing. I have four drafts of, uh, four, maybe three, three, four complete drafts of, uh, of my other book, my, my NA mental health book, sitting there. I have, um, and those were full rewrites, um, or at least the last one possi possibly wasn't a full rewrite. The first three were. Um, I have a half of a book of, of a stupid Hogwarts, but it's angels and demons book. <laughs> <laughs> I have a few chapters of a, um, of a cyber, cyberpunk dystopian post-apocalyptic steampunk book about twins who live in new amsterdam and 
one of them, the guy is the smart one and the girl has a mechanical arm and leg and it's like the brain and the brawn and they're like twins. I thought it was a really cool <laughs> dynamic and to be perfectly honest, I would totally write that still. Like, the whole plan was they were gonna, they were gonna, they were gonna, you know, figure out that it's a world owned by multiple corp it's a city owned by multiple corporations and the corporations have a kind of feudal kind of feudal relationship with their employees um they sort of rule as monarchs over these like little little parts of the city and they have a tense relationship with one another doesn't matter and then they these twins find out that one of the companies is doing like brain transplants i don't know it's so dumb um <laughs> and then i have <laughs> And then I have uh, a fantasy series which is buried deep inside my uh, files somewhere. It is... I have countless, countless drafts of that. And to be clear, I'm not going to write that book. That book is done. I went scorched earth on it. It is never going to be published. Um, it, Even though it's completed. It, 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 two of the books are complete. It, two of the, two, I mean, c complete in the sense that I have full drafts. Shit, of tons of words down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and two and a half books, actually. I, it was the, it was, you know, like a lot of fantasy and science fiction writers that I am around. That It's that baby series that they've been working on for years and years and years. And I started writing it when I was 12 and I quit writing it when I was 20, 21, I think. Um, and I rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it and rewrote it, draft, 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 to the, yeah, to the number of times I cannot even tell you how many times I've rewritten it. Why and, is it Scorched Earth then? Uh, it's, it's complicated, but basically I realized years ago now that the book was never going to be finished. And the reason for that was... I wanted the book to be something else, but I wasn't let to willing to let go of the elements that I invented when I was really young. And so there was this tonal inconsistency between the ideas I had when I was like 12, 13, and the story that I really wanted to write when I was like 21. Um, there were the holdover of these cheesy, bad ideas that I had that I just wasn't letting go. And no matter how many times I was rewriting it, it was a cosmetic change, right? It was a cosmetic change. I can rewrite the beginning as many times as I wanted, but it was still about four kids who each had an element that they could control. Um, going and finding a magical world that um, they imagined was real. I mean, I was 12, you know. It, it, it's, it's not like the worst idea, but it was. I was never going to be happy with it because I both loved and hated those ideas that I had when I was young. And so I decided, I was like, I need to get away from this or I'm never going to write anything. And so I just decided to stop it. It was, it was a learning process and I needed to write other things. And so I actually went scorched earth on it after I wrote another book. Um, oh yeah, I have two other books as well. Um, <laughs> sorry, I wrote, I, I stopped when I was like 20 or something like that. And I decided to write a romance novel, a YA romance novel. Basically, The Fault in Our Stars. Uh, it was called Letters to St. Jerome. And it was about two people who start exchanging letters without knowing who the other person is by leaving them in a certain spot in the library. And they find out who each other are and they develop a relationship and then one of them dies. Um, it's nothing particularly profound. I wanted to write something different. 
And so I did. And I loved doing that. I loved writing from a new perspective. I loved writing in a new genre. And so I was like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And so I wrote another book the following year uh, called uh, Little Village East of Here, which was about uh, three kids, uh, three, three semi-adults, like 20, 21 year olds, traveling Europe. And it was about kind of identity, about how much of who I am is decided by my me growing up and how much of who I am is my own choice. How much of who I am do I really have control over? And there was the struggle that I was sort of going through at the time. Um, and I, Great I wrote, questions. yeah, so I've got, I've got a couple of drafts of both of those books as well. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's, that's how many drafts I've got. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, that's amazing. I, I, I didn't expect you to say so many fully completed books. I mean, that's, hundreds of thousands of words so i mean this might this is this is probably out of um out of character but i i would like to hear about if you could say at least you said earlier you spend about one day a week writing how do you find the time or do you make the time if you could say like a bit of a you know like uh not a hustle culture question but just like you know, what, how do you do it? Like, <laughs> how do I do it? Well, with my... How do you get so many words down, basically? <laughs> how do I do it? I wake up at 4am and only 4am and then you've got to make sure you have your protein shake. You've got to get that... <laughs> it's, uh, um, it's... Don't forget the cold showers. Yeah. <laughs> I like warm showers. I love showers. I will stay in the shower for like an hour. No, uh, it's... Um, okay, I, th- whenever someone asks me this question, they say, how, how do you do it? And I need to say this right up the front. I'm paid to do this, okay? It's part of my job. And I cannot explain how much of a help that the fact that I will make money when I do this stuff, that it can be counted as part of my work, is a motivator. And that means not only as a motivator, but I can just stop doing work during the day and write you know i'm not writing in the evening well i I do write in the evenings as well and like weekends i absolutely do but i i I can write during the week when everyone else is at work in offices doing jobs that they don't necessarily want to do i'm so fortunate in having that opportunity and being able to do that is just a totally different ball game of being able to write um but okay with that out of the way how do I do it? Um, I set myself a low goal for the day, and usually that's two thousand, two and a bit thousand words, and I and I just take my time. A lot of people will write, you know, like I don't know, eight thousand words in a day or something like that, and I I just can't do that. Um, I need to think pretty deeply about how I write everything, and so two thousand. I usually get if I have an eight hour day, I'll probably get two to three thousand words out. I got 3,400, 3,000 on the weekend. So two days. And that's raw words or that's edited good to go? Raw words. At the moment, I'm going through a first draft of a sci-fi novel. I'm about 40,000 words in. Um, It's actually an expanded version of a short story, funnily enough. But um, yeah, so I I set myself a low goal and I just let myself take my time. Uh, Put your phone away. Like throw your phone on the other side of the room. Don't look at it. Um, Disconnect (laughs) yourself from the internet. Going to a physical place that is different. So, for example, when I write, I don't write at my desktop here with two screens. I write on my laptop. Um, 
because there's one screen where it only has my book. I don't have anything else to look at. Uh, and I write in a different room because it's, it's just feels different. You know, when I'm in here, it feels like I'm in here to work on other things. And so having that physical space, that physical distance, a change of mindset is really helpful for me personally. Um, yeah, let yourself sleep beforehand. So, uh, on days that I want to write, I make sure I get sleep beforehand because yeah, gotta, gotta think a lot. I was listening to an interview with Martin Amos. You're familiar with him? No, I've never heard of his name. Martin Amos, uh, is a famous British novelist, um, best friends of Christopher Hitchens. Uh, he wrote a great memoir called Experience. I think his most famous book is called Money. He's the son of Kingsley Amos, who's another really, really famous um, author who wrote a book called Everyday Drinking, which is one of the funniest books I've ever read in my life. But um, Martin Amos is like a, um, a savant when it comes to the English language. He oh, wants it to be good. done yeah. perfectly, you know, and he will like, throw up in your face if you use a lazy cliche he's like that type of guy um in an interview he said that and he's a full-time novelist right you know that's his job as well he doesn't have anything else to do you know he's not making youtube videos he's not running down business projects martin amos just puts words onto a screen and he said that he'll do about a hundred pages a year and I was like, that is unbelievable. My That's what he said. Hang on, I need to look something up. What is Martin Amos's net worth? <laughs> He's worth $20 million. That's why he can do 100 pages a year. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's like a, a commitment to, I suppose, really, really good writing yeah um, i i am definitely you know. someone who prefers to do good writing rather than a lot of writing um because i'm just like if i'm just gonna re if i'm not gonna get anything from this in my second read what's the point of writing it you know and people go well you just gotta get the words out on the page but what i tend to find is i get the words out on the page and then regret where i took the words you know and i have to go back and rewrite it <laughs> is there a thing in common that all great storytellers share I know it's a bit of a, not a great question, but just since you've spent so much time thinking about storytellers and you've got such a wide um, sort of erudite, erudite knowledge of stories in general, is there something that the authors share um, that we can like, you know? Um, the only thing that would come to mind is a form of empathy. Um, the capacity to write inside the heads of another, probably one that isn't you uh it's often the, the mark of a great writer for me is the ability to take the mindset and the way someone thinks that is nowhere near you and to explore that in depth um and there's parts of you uh, parts of your you and all your writing i know that much um but the ability to bring someone to life, I guess, who is not just you, is is incredible. You know, you look at Dostoevsky and stuff, and those characters that he's writing are obviously dealing with stuff that he dealt with in in, in um, you know crime and punishment and stuff. But um, 
his capacity to write from the perspective of other people is just incredible. Shakespeare is the same, right? Shakespeare's characters are just so full of life and empathy, you know? Like, he is not King Lear and he is not Hamlet. He is not Othello. Uh, but the way that he brought those characters to life is is just amazing. Um, and so I, I, I think that is that is the case. You can tell when a writer is just sort of putting themselves in a book or the character isn't really that in-depth, you know? Um, yeah. I think Jeff Vandermeer is very good at that as well. Um, yeah, I, absolutely. The... What, who would I say is... Frederick Buckman's Beer Town is great as well with that. Yeah. That's a great answer. Um, I wasn't sure if anything was going to come out of it, but I really like that. Do you think empathy is experience or is it nature? Oh, it's both, one, right? One, one. I, I mean, you, you've met people who are empathetic towards certain things um, because of their experiences. Some people might describe me that way in some senses, that I'm empathetic towards those with mental health problems, but not necessarily other problems. Um, and... So there are definitely experiences which make people more empathetic. Uh, but it's also nature. Some people are just way more empathetic by nature. Um, and that's a great strength of theirs. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. It's a, it's a mix. Tim, listen, I have... Uh, I've taken way too much of your time. You've been very generous by uh, <laughs> giving it to me as well, I just want to say. Um, there's a couple more questions I'd like to ask. Um, one or two on... Really, one on world building, and then three that I like to ask every guest, if possible. Yeah, so absolutely. Let's, let's um, I'm enjoying you, this conversation. This is, this is really fun. This, was, this has been really deep questions. I've really enjoyed that. Man, me too. And and if it wasn't, you know, recording, right, there's a, there is still a level of sort of performance that as I as the host need to guarantee, right? But otherwise I would just ask you rambling questions about Lord of the Rings and stuff. But maybe another time. But um, anyway, so I um, think about, well, classically, like the Eagles and Lord of the Rings and... Um, what do you think about Deus Ex Machina events? <laughs> you know, where, where do they where do they fit into your worldview? Is it is it lazy or I don't know? Is there something profound about them? Like, like specifically like to the, do with the Eagles? Like specifically? No, don't not specifically the Eagles, but just generally as a as a. I I actually have a video on Deus Ex Machina coming out soon, uh, specifically on whether or not a thing is Deus Ex Machina. But um, Deus Ex Machina is. It, it it it's the reason Deus Ex Machina sucks is because the audience feels like uh, the problems are solved without any setup. You know, when you've invested so much in the characters and their decisions and their skills, and the you've kept track of like the little points of information that the reader has given you, and then suddenly a solution to the problem doesn't come from that information that the reader that the author has given you. It feels cheap. It feels annoying. It's kind of like, ah, oh, so all of that stuff that I knew, all of that, all the story, the build-up, what was it going to pay off to? Um, yeah. So there's there's that. It, 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 a lot of the times it's to do with kind of Shikov's guns. 
do you set up the 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 thing in the first act that you're going to use in the third um and sometimes people think deus ex machina things are deus ex machina when they're not um often because something unexpected happens but it's it's thematically relevant so people read stories differently um some people read stories very literally some people read stories very thematically some people read stories very um uh psychologically i guess and what'll happen is that because of those different ways that people read things they'll expect different endings they'll expect the, the story to resonate with a particular type of ending and in i have encountered some stories like avatar the last Airbender is actually one example of this where there's an ending that is thematically resonant it fits with the setup of the story thematically but it doesn't necessarily fit with the literal setup of the the story the things that that, that the character has learned and, and we've been keeping track of and that gets a lot of flack and criticism so i i can understand that in those cases uh the deus ex machina it, it can be viewed as that um but it's also a bit more complicated than people often think and are the eagles deus ex machina well they don't really do much in the lord of the rings like they they said like tolkien was asked you know why don't they just fly and he's just like that'd be boring <laughs> um, <laughs> is that what he said well he, he didn't say that exactly um, he said he said that it wouldn't make for much of a good story or something along those lines. Um, oh, that's almost like admitting that it was a, a weak point in the plot. Yeah, it? he said he said um, the eagles have been criticised before, and um, I don't really want to become too dependent on them, so I'm just not going to use them. Um, yeah, like you can come up with oh, there's technically law reasons like the 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 eagles are the um, agents of Manwe, and Manwe was said that he couldn't intervene too much in the affairs of Middle Earth, and if they they helped the the ring get destroyed, they'd be directly intervening, which is what they're not meant to do. They're only meant to subtly do it, and you can you can you can argue that, but I mean ultimately Tolkien just made a thing that got a little bit too out of hand, and he he didn't want to use them too much. That's basically it. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, there's there's that. Um, the eagles, they kind of help in the Hobbit a little bit, I guess. Um, but, but the Hobbit is in a way a fairy tale and Gandalf sort of does miraculous things. And then that's why he sort of vanishes from the story because he can't help them get escape out of everything. There's this sort of transition of Gandalf is keeping this, this group safe for the while. Um, and as long as he is with them, they're safe. And you definitely get that because he's this wise, powerful character, but then he leaves and it's meant to be a tonal transition to, oh, now Bilbo's on his own. Now Bilbo's got to make it, uh, uh, now Bilbo has got to, um, figure stuff out. So there's that. And at the end, like the Eagles show up a little bit, but they're not fundamentally, you know, like they don't destroy the ring. And they don't fundamentally do that much in the battle. The, the the battle changes once the ring's destroyed. So yeah, I'm not I'm not too hard on the eagles. I especially don't really care because I'm kind of like I don't know. It's like a small discrepancy, I guess. It's 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 at best a minor flaw 
Um, it's not something that I particularly care about. And Tolkien didn't actually end up using them that much. So, yeah, at, at the end of The Hobbit, you could say that they're deus ex machina, but it was Bayon that really turned the tide of the war because he killed Bolg. Uh, yeah, Bolg. So, yeah. And Bayon was set up, so... Hmm. <laughs> and did uh, Gandalf say fly, you fools, or, or to, to literally fly? Well, what's your uh, take on that? No, he did not. My goodness, that is the dumbest theory I've ever seen. Like... <laughs> <laughs> No, he did not. He did not say that. That's so dumb. Oh, he just said leave, go away, run. <laughs> okay, uh, you asked this question at the end of one of your videos, and I thought it was such a fantastic question. So I want to turn it on to you. What fictional place are you most sentimentally attached to? Uh, Middle Earth, probably. Like, you can. There's a lot of fictional worlds that I love and I'm attached to, but a lot of them are really bad. Like, I wouldn't want to live there. Whereas you kind of want to live in Middle-earth. It's a bit fantastical. It's a bit mythical. Um, and maybe the Avatar world, theoretically. Um, it'd be between those two, probably. Yeah. Uh, the only other one would maybe be Artemis Fowl, because Artemis Fowl was my Harry Potter. I grew up with Artemis Fowl, and uh, being in Haven City and stuff like that would be pretty damn cool 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 um finally tim these are the three that i try to ask um as many guests as possible so the first is what is a moment in your life when looking back on it you can't believe that you got to be a part of it and let me know if you want more context for that question oh my gosh that i got to be a part of it so it's got to be it's got to be you were experiencing it sort of and you were like how did I be so lucky or so how did I get to be a part of this? This is so amazing. You said earlier, sort of having a correspondence with an author that you loved when you were a younger boy, yeah, something like th that. That's, that one was definitely kind of, that was the most visceral example of, wow, look how far I've come, I guess. Um, you know, I can be like, be a part of it. Like, oh, I published books, but books, but that's not really the sort of thing you're going for. I would say the moment I turned up and I said, hey, I'm going to be meeting fans at this particular place at this particular time. And like 25 people turned up was insane. I was just like, oh my gosh, there's people here. That's crazy. Um, yeah. So that was, that was in, that was in Australia, um, when I went to VidCon. Uh, so, so pr probably that moment of VidCon or when I interviewed Brandon Sanderson and, uh, Christopher Pellini, those would be the two most visceral, wow, I can't believe how far I've come moments that I've had. Um, I'm not, I haven't been a part of a huge number of things because I live in New Zealand and being a part of things physically is, is very difficult. Nothing really happens in New Zealand. So at best I get like digital versions of that, you know, um, yeah, and I guess the big wow moments for me tend to be just pondering the things that I get to do on a daily basis. But, yeah. You ever thought about relocating, you know, going to America and getting involved in the the big, bad gravitational pull of that nation? You know, I've thought about it, but I, I'm a New Zealander at heart. I love living here. It is my home there's nothing it's it's perfect in so many ways 
uh, my girlfriend and I, my partner and I, we want to move to Europe for a couple of years, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love to go live in Scandinavia it's in some way. She'd love to live in Italy. Yeah. Uh, Why so Scandinavia? Th- those are... I like the cold, and I like forests, and I like waterfalls, and I like... Uh, yeah, just that sort of thing. So... Oh, man. You gotta, you gotta hit me up when you make that decision. Though I think your, uh, your fiance actually probably has a better, a better, a better grip on uh, the realities on the ground. To be honest, Italy is much nicer place to live. <laughs> what? No, that can't be true. Look, Tim, Scandinavia is is unbelievably beautiful and a great place, no doubt about it. Um, if you're if you're coming here for the nature, you probably want to live in Norway somewhere. It's unbelievable, right? But there is a difference between popping in for a couple of weeks, soaking up the midnight, uh, the aurora, the snow, you know, the three, four hours of daylight. There's a difference between popping in and doing that and then copying six, seven months of it. Um, Not every day is good weather. Most days aren't. My first year I was here, my first winter, December had four hours of sunlight the month (laughs) because there was clouds so thick throughout the majority of the days and it, so yeah that's amazing i mean uh we also want to live in germany so you know there's there's germany um yeah i so i have thought about it i've never seriously contemplated going to america the i mean i i, I work online i have friends in america but i couldn't move to the united states like it's just too big it's I mean, I went to California once and I stepped off and I was like, it's just so dry. The air smells bad. You know, the water's terrible. It's just, oh my gosh. So I I don't think I could, I don't think I could do that. All right, mate. Um, I don't know if you saw, but this podcast is kind of largely geopolitical, which does make this for a, (laughs) for a, for a random appearance, but, um, you know, it's only that way because it's an extension of my interest. Ultimately, this show is an extension of my interest. So I ask this question to as many people as I can pass it if you don't find it interesting, but what is a country that you're very bullish on looking into the future? Very bullish. Are you Bullish. bullish on? What's that mean? You think you, you anticipate it to have a very bright future. You say if you're bullish on a share or a stock or a company, you think that that they, (laughs) yeah, it's, it's like uh, fundamental investing terminology, bullish and bearish. If you're bearish on something, you think it's going down bullish. You think it's going up. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, uh, has a bright future. Um, You're bullish on it. (laughs) Yeah. So it depends what you mean by has a bright future. So China is probably going to keep ascending over the next while. Uh, it's becoming, uh, you know, I mean, I'm looking at, I'm looking at American hegemony at the moment and um, you, you're looking at the way that China is investing in Africa and the like. And it's definitely building its own geopolitical sphere. And what's really interesting is you can look at a map of recognition of Taiwan of the cumber of the countries that recognize Taiwan as a legitimate nation. And you can see over the last 20 years, it's been ticking down and down and down and down and down. Uh, particularly as countries in Africa and the Middle East stop recognizing it largely because of Chinese investment. And so China is ascending in that sense. 
um, and their quality of life is increasing and increasing and increasing. India is in many senses the same. Its quality of life is increasing rapidly, um, and they're becoming a world power of their own. Uh, I mean, they are a world power. They're the world's largest democracy. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we're, we're going to keep seeing those trends. Um, I, I think we're going to see a continual decline in Great Britain's, um, in Great Britain's hegemony and their influence in the world order, which we've already seen with the ascension of Germany being kind of the predominant European power now, um, as, uh, particularly under, um, uh, Merkel, you know, but, um, of course she's gone now, but the influence still there remains under Schultz. Um, uh, countries that are going to continue, I, I reckon we're probably going to see, uh, I think we're probably going to see, uh, uh, oh man, it's like hard to put it all down into words. We're seeing Brazil become a bigger power, but um, I, I reckon I'm probably I'm probably more interested in seeing South Korea and Japan ascending to heights that they currently aren't at. Yeah. Fascinating. Nice. It's cool to see your your own geopolitical worldview mapped out there. Um, there's a great book called uh, The Second Continent by Howard French. It it does this unbelievable job at uh, what you said there sort of China buying influence in Africa him really getting on the ground for several years several different countries and explaining just how it is all happening and it's a largely a grim picture as most things with China kind of tend to be uh, on the international stage at least yeah um, finally Tim this is my favorite question and um, I'm very keen to hear what you who you answer if you could witness a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier. So if you were to listen to a podcast, who would you like to listen to? I would love to listen to a conversation between maybe Shakespeare and Tolkien. Or Oscar Wilde and, uh, you know, someone like Ernest Hemingway. Um, but if I was going political, then I'd love to hear a conversation between, um, uh, oh my gosh, my name's blanking on the German unifier, the, <laughs> what's this? Damn name. The the guy responsible for like German unification. What's his name? You know. Von Bismarck. Bismarck. I'd love to see a conversation between Bismarck and uh someone like you know what? Bismarck and Donald Trump would be really funny. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. So let's go with them. <laughs> nice. Love it, Tim. Love it. Love it. And uh, yes, thank you for 
giving me the time despite my uh, really unstructured interview today. I promise you they're not all like this, but um, I, I really, really, yeah, I appreciate you uh, giving me the time. It's, it's, a, it's a real, it's a thrill. Yeah, it's a pleasure. No, thank you very much for having me on. It was a, it was a real, uh, real pleasure. Um, and I, and I like talking about some of that deeper stuff. It was, it was, it was great to talk. Yeah. So thank you again, Tim, you absolute legend. Um, just for the audience who's still listening and still hanging around, you know, we were in correspondence for a while and this was actually recorded shit six months ago or something. Um, and the intention was to just talk about Lord of the Rings. But the more I dove into his channel and the more I realized um, the depth of some of his videos, um, they kind of touch you. Some of them are very emotional. And as you saw with pieces of this conversation as well, Tim does have incredible depth and um, he's, yeah, I really liked him. So thank you again, Mr. Hickson, bro. And uh, congratulations on the million subscriber threshold, which I'm sure you will shortly plunder down. Now, my ambition for this podcast, what is my hope for this podcast? My ambition is to corner the podcast market for eclectic curiosities, no matter what country it is that you're listening in from. Now, key limitation to this ambition is the fact that there is no genre or category for eclectic curiosities. There is general interest, um, but that doesn't quite cover it, I think. And there are there are shows like... Uh, um, how I built this or a stuff you should know that just completely dominate this category. So if I'm to somehow reach this ambition, I would just implore you, please, my dear, dear, dear listener who's listened this far in. Oh, and as well, I should say to all the new listeners who potentially wanted to, uh, who potentially learned about this podcast because of Tim, swipe up your phone and give me the juiciest, healthiest review that you can muster within your Spotify application, the same for Apple, the same for wherever you're listening to the podcast. Feed the algorithm with positive signals that the Curious Worldville podcast is being enjoyed and listened to and share it with your mates, share it with your dog, share it with everybody that you think might be interested in this show. Again, Mr. Hickson, thank you very much, sir.